Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for this text of Scripture, and I pray that you will um, help me to think and speak clearly and help us to learn well. And, and more than anything else, Lord Jesus, change our lives uh, so that we can flourish in this world. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, if you're in uh, any, any of the latter part of high school, uh, even at university, you may know this. Do you ever find it irritating when people keep asking you, oh, so what are you going to do when you finish school? <laughs> what are you going to do when you grow up? Yeah, it starts from very young, doesn't it? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I was having this great chat with a guy this morning uh, who came along. He's uh, in high school, and we're talking about his faith and where he was at. And he said, I, I, just, want, I just want God to show me what I'm meant to do with my life. And I'm like, you and me both, buddy. It's one of the great questions of life. What am I here to do? How do I figure out what I'm meant to do? What's the purpose of it all? Uh, and, and let me tell you, for those of you who are young, that big question looms over you, doesn't it? Subject choices, performance, are you going to get the marks to get into what you do? And then if you get into uni, you realize that's only step one. People point it out to you. Maybe that's the end goal. No, it's not. Uni's just the start because it, it just gets harder after that. And then if you think, oh, once I've found my career, it'll all be good, let me, give you, let me let you into a little secret. In your middle age, around 70, no, in your middle age, around, you know, like in your 40s and 50s, you know this question is going to come back and it's going to haunt you because you're going to be like I am. You're going to look back and you're going, oh, man, that was, that was 25 years. That went pretty quickly. What am I going to do for the next 25 years? And, and work that I thought was going to be so great isn't probably going to get any better. And, and what's it all about? And how do I make sense of it? And actually, it gets more and more and more painful because you realize, like, as you think and you learn more about life, it's just more and more challenges and it's confusing. And now I'm not there yet, but I'm told this. Uh, you know, what is it that keeps you awake at night when you're in your 70s and your 80s? A apart from getting up to go to the toilet all the time. Um, well, you look back and you go, what was all that? What's my legacy? Did it all count? Who's going to remember me? How do I make sense of that? So, and so these are really massive questions and they don't go away through life. And one of the challenges is faith. We sometimes think that simply being a follower of Jesus will sort of answer all those questions. You know, it's the Sunday school answer. What's the meaning of life? Jesus. How do I make sense of my career? Jesus. How do I say that? Jesus. And you go, yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. But actually, Jesus can actually make it a hell of a lot more painful, in fact, because there are particular struggles with faith. And that's what this book addresses in a wonderful, wonderful way. Now, uh, here's the, Margot said to me, so the beauty uh, of, of my family uh, and my job is, uh, is I get almost real-time feedback, <laughs> particularly, or, you know, shortly afterwards, like over lunch, everyone tells me in my family about, like, what I could do better. It's just great. Um, love that. Uh, and, and that's in addition to everyone else telling me. So, um, Margot said, but the only problem with the sermon this morning is you sort of gave the answer to the, all the questions. Um, and I said, yes, that's the only way you can make sense of the book. So let me, sh let me unpack for you. I'm gonna, what we're going to do this evening is show you in a big picture level how this, how this book answers all these questions. 
And uh, for those of you who've done the IB, it's going to be a bit like a talk lecture, a bit like a theory of knowledge lecture, apparently. So that's very exciting for those of you who are doing the IB. Uh, and here's the first point I'm going to make. Our existential crisis is built on top of an epistemological crisis. That's the point of the book. Let's pray, and that's it. We'll move to communion now. Is that all, that's all clear and that's easy, right? <laughs> no, it's not. So let me unpack what those two words mean. Our existential crisis, what am I going to do with myself? Is there any meaning and purpose? How do I make sense of it all? That's the crisis, right? Okay, that's the existential. What's the epistemological crisis? What's epistemology? Let's pretend this isn't a rhetorical question. It's, 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 epistemology is the study of how we know stuff. How do you come to know stuff, right? Isn't that right? Yep. There we go. Okay, so, uh, and what Ecclesiast the book of Ecclesiastes is going to do is help us with our existential question, how do I live, by helping us with our epistemological question, how do I know? And you say, ah, how do you get that, Mark? Well, this goes, uh, this is really significant. It goes to how, what, what we see was going on at the time Ecclesiastes was written and why it was written. So, let's, let me explain to you what the, what the scholars think was going on with the book, why it was written. So, imagine this book is a story. There's a narrator who is telling the story. And you imagine it's like an old Jewish guy sitting down with his son and they're facing lots of challenges of faith. And he's going to tell, to help his son address these challenges of his faith, he tells him the story of, this, of the journey and the, the life of this fellow Kohelet, which in the NIV, which was led, the new uh, international version, uh, is translated teacher. And often it's called teacher, but I prefer calling him by his Hebrew name, Kohelet. So he's got a name, he's got an, a, a person. And so the narrator is telling his son the story of Kohelet so he can learn from Kohelet's journey uh, how to live. Now, what was Kohelet's journey? I hear you asking. Well, uh, scholars today think that the book, this letter, was probably written around the third century BC. And uh, so, uh, for those of you who are into Old Testament studies, I think it's a late dating of, of, uh, of the book. Um, now, what was going on in the 3rd century BC for the people of God? Well, they had been, hundreds of years before, they'd lived under David and Solomon in Jerusalem in the center of God's universe, and it was amazing, and it was fantastic, great big temple, and God was there, and it was blessing, and it was good times, and it was brilliant. Life was pretty good with God. And then what happened was they screwed it all up, and they got taken off into exile, went off to Babylon, had the snot kicked out of them by the Babylonians. Eventually, they, after 70 years in exile, they come back, they dribble back into Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, but it's a pretty weak sort of pale imitation of what was there. And uh, now they're living in, back in Israel, but it's nothing like it was before. Okay, now, so that's where it was. Now, at the same time that that's what's going on for them personally, in the ancient world, Greece is starting to become increasingly uh, influential, and in particularly Greek philosophers 
who can think of a Greek philosopher? Yes, Plato, not a dishwashing liquid. And uh, Socrates, yes, and Aristotle. That's right, so Aristotle. Now, uh, 4th, 5th century Greece, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates start having a massive influence. Those ideas spread all around the ancient world. And at the heart of the ideas, the epistemology, the theory of knowing of Aristotle was this idea that we came to know the world not by reading religious texts, not by listening to oracles, not by anyone else telling us what to do. We could understand the world by the exercise of autonomous reason and observation. So if I studied the world closely enough and I, and I observed it, and I paid close attention, and I reasoned properly, I could learn what the world was all about. It's called empiricism. It's the underlying set of ideas behind the scientific method that we can study the world and come to know what it's like. Okay, unlike, say, prior to that, where in Israel, for example, you read the Bible and God told you what the world was about. Now, I study the world and I can figure it out, okay? You got that? So, is that a bad thing? That is, is empiricism a bad thing, that I can study the world and figure out what's going on? No, but it has limits. So, this is the problem of faith, right? So, now you're a good Jewish boy, you're in Jerusalem, and you're, you're reading at, you know, as you prepare for the equivalent of the IB in Jerusalem back in the day, third century BC, and you start to read Aristotle, and everyone's reading Aristotle, and they're saying, you can make sense of the world by the application of your reason and observation and experience. And now you're a good Jewish boy, and you start doing that. You start studying the world, and what do you, what do you discover about God as you study the world? He's not there. Life's pretty shitty in Jerusalem. God seems absent. He doesn't seem to be keeping his promises. Really bad things are happening to good religious people. Like, that's hard. Undermines everything that you've believed and been taught, right? So, the book of Ecclesiastes is a brilliant piece of writing designed to equip Israelites to see the limits of empiricism, the limits of, of coming to know the world yourself and push you back into God. And it does that by, through the journey of Kohelet, so Kohelet, the teacher, goes on a journey to discover what it's like to try and understand the world within this Greek worldview and approach, to understand the world as an I. And I'll show you what I mean. If you, uh, when you read When you read the book, uh, and you start in verse 12, you see, 
you can see this shift. So, so 12 starts to describe the journey that Kohelet went on. And you know what you discover? You discover the I. Unlike many other places in Scripture, everywhere you read, just go through and read uh, Ecclesiastes and see uh, the I. It's all about Kohelet saying, I did this, I looked at this, I studied this, I pursued this. It's a very carefully designed rhetorical strategy to show that what he was doing was indwelling this epistemological frame of autonomous reason. Really interesting, isn't it? I hear you say. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Really interesting. Okay, so now you go, what the heck does that have to do with you and I? Well, we are heirs of Aristotle's thinking, and the pressure on us is, is almost identical to the pressure on this third century BC Jewish person, because we are told, are we not, that we need to reject any grand meta-narrative, any grand story that tells us how to know the world. We are told that if we study the world, if we think about it, if we observe it, we can make sense of it, aren't we? It, it's all about us as the autonomous knowing individual. And, and actually, if those of you still at school, our whole education is premised on this. There's been a shift. You may have noticed this. I have as a parent from when I was at school from content and teacher-oriented education to pupil-centered or learner-centered education. You are the ones who have to discover. You have to find it out. You have to decide. Now, we've got even worse. We've gone a step further than that. We've doubled down on the strategy following the lead of... Uh, particularly the continental postmodern writers, uh, Foucault and Derrida and Sartre out of the existentialist move, who've said, sort of the, the postmodernist neo-Marxist construction of the world that says, not just do you as the autonomous person have come to know the world and decide what's true by the application of your reason and the rejection of any authority from anyone else, not only do you come to know it, but actually your knowing, your choices construct the world. They, they construct what's really real. Let me give you an example. Very, very topical, and we could spend a couple of hours unpacking this, so uh, uh, don't misunderstand me, but you see this in the gender, the debate around human gender and gender fluidity, right? So not just is it that I can apply my wisdom and knowledge myself to understand the meaning of sex, okay? Now, actually, Kohelet is going to, we're going to have a great discussion in a couple of weeks' time, because Kohelet goes, I'm going to use this autonomous reason to explore the meaning and significance of sex. And because he was a Solomonic-like king, uh, he could have as much sex as he wanted, so he had a great big harem, and he withheld no desire from himself, and uh, it was a, a fully immersive, experiential learning uh, extravaganza. Now, we're not going to do that, but we're going to learn from his doing of that, and we'll see what he comes up with. But you see, what we do now, we don't just say we can make up our own minds and find the truth ourselves. We say that our choices construct the truth. So now, I don't just find out about sex through the application of my knowledge. I can choose what sex means for me and who I am in the very foundations of reality. Of course, there's a problem with that, isn't there? See, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. 
And, uh, and in fact, what Kohelet will help us to see is that we can't construct reality by our choices. That there are limits. Reality is given to us. So I'd ask the Dr. Phil question when people talk to me about gender fluidity and a social constructionist view of reality. I'd say, so, how's that working for you? Not so well. Because it doesn't work. Because there is a world out there. Reality exists. And the question is, how do we know it? And it's not working well for us. And I, I say that uh, because it's, we, we live with a legacy of 50, of 50, 60, or 70, or 80 years now of, in, of ideas, drawing from ideas back in the third century that are actually deeply destructive. And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to show us. So what exactly, what's the critique that Ecclesiastes gives of this way of seeing the world? The critique is this, and uh, it goes to an important translation issue. I don't know if any of you notice uh, the translation of verse 2. What was it translated in? Look at verse 2. This is the, <laughs> this is the part that Margot said, oh, I've, I've given you the, I've told you the end of the story. Verse 2 is the sort of programmatic verse that tells us the limits of the exercise of autonomous human reason, what the real problem is in the world, and what is it? What was it translated in the, in the, the passage that Sam? Meaningless. Uh, the root word, the Greek word behind this is uh, a Hebrew, the, not Greek, Hebrew, uh, hevel is the Hebrew. And, um, and, and, many, and there, are many, there are a range of words that one can use to translate hevel. It means kind of in, uh, ephemeral or mist-like. Uh, the translations, that it, in the older trans, English translations, it was vanity, vanity of vanities, um, and in contempor many contemporary translations, it's meaningless. The problem with the translation meaningless is that it makes you start to think that actually the book is really saying life is ultimately utterly pointless. And, and one could be forgiven for reading the book in that way. Well, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. And you just go on and on, and it's like, oh man, just slit your wrists right now, why don't you? The problem with that reading is actually even within the book itself, it makes claims about how good life is. So there are what the scholars call these carpe diem passages. They're these chunks of Ecclesiastes that are actually really affirming of life. And, and the rest of the Bible is really affirming of life. God creates us in Genesis 1 and 2, and he says life's good, and we've got work to do, and we do have meaning and purpose. And, and the, much of the rest of the Bible says, actually, we have great meaning and purpose in the world. So... A translation or an interpretation of Ecclesiastes saying everything is meaningless, it's utterly pointless, that nihilistic reading doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. Hence, this translation, which uh, is not a majority view, I'll disclose, it comes from a, an old colleague of mine who uh, is a Hebrew expert and a philosopher who's written a major commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he argues in a way that I think is very convincing, that a more helpful translation of this word hevel is, is enigmatic. Is enigmatic. Now, what does it mean? What does enigmatic mean? To say something is enigmatic. What does that mean? Hard to know. 
I like to think of myself as an enigma wrapped up in a mystery. Uh, in the Second World War, I thought that was funny this morning. I got a bit more of a laugh, but, you know, okay, tough crowd. I know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, what's that? I could say it again. Will you laugh if I say it again? Okay, okay. Oh, let's assume you won't, so I'll move on. Um, uh, in the Second World War, the Germans had an Enigma machine, right? Uh, what was the point of the Enigma machine? Code. To, to encode that, their messages so that no one could understand it. Kohaled is making the point... Everything okay there, Amelia? That's good. Just laughing in the spirit, I take it. That's beautiful. So, Colette is making the point that if you just try and understand the world by the exercise of autonomous reason, if you and I go into the world and try and make sense of it, what we will discover is it's utterly enigmatic. You'll think you've got it. You'll, you'll study something and you'll think you've got it and then just as you think you've understood it, you'll be like, oh, it's disappeared, like mist. I, I, I don't get it. So you'll, you'll, and this is what the book does and we'll go through this week after week. We'll study each of these major issues in life. He says, money, let's think about money. And just when you think you've understood how to make sense of money, you'll discover something happens and it all goes, I didn't, I, I didn't understand it. You'll, you'll think about your career, vocation, work. And you'll go, I'll try and understand it. And you'll think and you'll think and you'll think and you'll think and then something will happen. You go, man, I just, no, I just don't get that. He'll even say this, which is really, really confronting for an original reader. He'll say, when you autonomously apply yourself to wisdom, what you'll discover is even wisdom is enigmatic. Just when you think you've got it, you'll discover that you don't. And, and the enigma happens when you try and answer this question. You see, this is the question of the ages, right? This is the programmatic question uh, for all of the book. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's the benefit for everything that happens in the world. That phrase, under the sun, says that God's concern is for every little bit of life. That's one of the things I love about this book, is it's going to unpack and explore all of life. He says, as we try and answer this question by ourselves, we discover it's utterly enigmatic. Why? Why is this so hard? Uh, well, verse 4 to 11 has this poem that describes life. Why is life enigmatic? Why is it so hard to discover what is going on? Because listen, life uh, in verses 4 through 11, is, uh, life is repetitive, it's unproductive, and it's unremembered. Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. This is your life, isn't it? The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and blows to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. How do you, how do you find what life is all about when you look at it, you study it, you just go, it's just this great big cycle. It's just repetitive, and it's unproductive. I love verse 7, all streams flow into the sea, 
yet the sea is never full. So you do all your work, and it's like you never did it. I think about that. Why do I have to preach every week? Shouldn't I just tell you all this stuff once, and that'll be it? Then I could just go live in Noosa. Why? Every week. And it's never done. My work is never done. Your work will never be done. It doesn't really produce much. This will be the... uh, Let me tell you, you study your life. You go through life. You you do all your work. And I often think of my life. It's like there's a bucket of water. And I put my hand in. I think my hand's making such a difference in that bucket of water. And then I pull it out and it was though my hand was never there. That's your life. That's my life. Let me tell you, what it, what's it going to be like? You're going to have some great career. You, you all get this gum from school all the time, don't you? Find your passion in life. You can change the world. Yeah, not so much. Maybe. Not really. You don't achieve very much. You won't achieve very much either. You just won't. So you can't make sense of that, can you? Because in your heart of hearts, you know you want, you know you should, and it's not all rubbish that people say, find your passion, change the world. It's just not true, but you want it to be true. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? Um, and, and even if you do achieve something great, all things are wearisome, uh, more than one can say. This is a great verse, verse 8. Like if you're ever a teacher or a preacher, uh, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear. It's full of hearing. You always want to hear more, don't you? So I'll just keep speaking, because I know your ears aren't full. So this is my uh, proof text for really long sermons, um, just putting it out there. Uh, there is nothing new under the sun. And then in verse 11, listen, no matter what great things you achieve, No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Uh, Can anyone here remember their great, great, no, let's let's make it easier. Can anyone remember their grandfather's first names? Hands up if you've got your grandfather's first names. Okay. Can anyone remember uh, all sets of your great-grandfather's first names? No, not really. Ah, well, very good. Uh, can anyone remember the names of your great-great-grandfathers? No, I didn't think so. I, I stopped remembering it about like my grandfather, grandparents. I can't get beyond that. Even my grandparents, they're fading into memory. That's going to be you. You think you're so important, don't you? You're an I. No one's going to remember you. Your great-grandkids won't even remember you. That messes with your head. That's painful. So how do, you, how do you come to know what life is about when it, no one can remember it anyway? That's the burden. That's the pain. That's why everything, everything on our own is enigmatic when you think about these things long enough. So then what Kohelet does, and in the rest of this chapter, he describes the journey that he's on. And he says, and I want to I put this right out here. The Bible is so honest, right? He says, this is, dear friends, uh, have a look at it, uh, right? What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I don't know if you're feeling that now. 
It's a burden to think about life like this, isn't it? It really is. It's hard, hey? You know it. That's why, so, so what do we do with the burden of thinking about life like this? Well, I, I think there are, really, there are a few strategies our culture adopts. The most popular strategy to try and ease the burden is entertainment, isn't it? Why do you think Netflix is so popular or really any streaming video content provider? Well, because when you're binge-watching The Handmaid's Tale, apart from being traumatized and suffering PTSD and being stressed, for the eight hours that you watch season one back-to-back, if one were to do that, you, you don't ever have to think about the burden. You don't have to feel the burden of life. You don't have to think about it. Or it might be, you know, watching, you know, um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Netflix all day, just for example, mightn't it? At a lighter note, not looking at anyone in particular um, in my family at the moment. Um, <laughs> you don't have to think. Why do we spend so much money going to the footy? Why do people obsess about sport? Because when you're watching it or you're playing it, you don't have to think. You don't feel the burden. It's a heavy burden. So you don't... What else? Well, we medicate... Yeah, shopping. We, we, uh, we medicate the burden away. And I actually think this is at the root cause of much addiction. And we medicate it through the release of internal neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin that get released through shopping. You, you buy your thing and you get a, a release of dopamine, you feel good. So we can medicate it through kind of addictive things that release internal neurotransmitters that lift our mood and help us not feel the burden or we use external substances to do that. Because life is hard. Thinking about it too deeply is a great burden. It is. Now, again, you know, we go back to the start. We can think that faith will make it easier, but actually, you know, faith, faith can make it harder. <laughs> doesn't have to, but it can. I find a lot of, and, and I, I find a lot of Christians' faith is very shallow because you use Jesus in the way another addict might use a substance. Jesus becomes just something to stop you feeling the burden of life. Right? But that's not the point of faith because God wants us to live in the life. So now we're all feeling the burden. What's the answer? Because let me tell you uh, why this book is so relevant is it says if we're just left to ourselves to discover life, it's, it's a crushing burden. You know this amongst your friends. Now, I don't mean in any way to be disparaging or, or, or make light of, of the mental illness. I think the sign of the burden and how lost we are is this epidemic of mental illness we have in our culture, right? It's because it is, because we're messed up. And it's, it's centuries of ideas gone wrong, and it's the burden of being thrown back on ourselves. We can't live like that. You just can't. So what's the answer? Well, I'm glad you ask. We find the answer, like in any good story, right at the end uh, in verse 13. Uh, this now you imagine, this is where the, uh, the old guy's got his son and he's told his son 
the story of Kohelet and how hard it's been and how Kohelet, using this Greek view of the, the, the eye, the autonomous knowing, he's discovered, he's pushed his son to, to follow with Kohelet the logical conclusion of an eye-centered view of the world and you discover that it's utterly enigmatic and it's destructive and in the end it's kind of unlivable. And at the end he says, okay, so this is it. What's the alternative? Because, oh my God, there'd better be an alternative. <laughs> he says, here's what you do. You know, here's how you know about the world. Here's how you live in the world. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Don't reject God as the way and the means by which you can actually know the world. Faith is not, a, not an escape from the world. Faith is not a disconnect from reality. Faith actually is how you come to know and live in the world the way it really is. According to Kohelet, according to wisdom, according to Scripture, faith is the means by which we come to know how the world really works and how we learn to obey God, how we learn to live in this world. You can't see it just yourself. You can't make sense of the world and understand it from just you or me thinking. And if you stop and reflect for a moment, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Like if there is a creator who has made this vast, extraordinary, complex, and enigmatic world. Uh, and if our perspective on this world is so limited, then presumably I can only really understand it if I have the view of the Creator. Let me illustrate. I know none of you can think back to this, but imagine back when you were a three-year-old. Or let's not imagine you. Let's imagine a three-year-old. And if there's a little three-year-old, and his name is Johnny. Okay, so Johnny's a, Johnny's a very active little three-year-old boy. And little Johnny's world uh, is full of activity and running around, and he loves kicking a ball and chasing balls, okay, because he's, he's a three-year-old boy. And, and he has, he's in his backyard. Uh, he has this experience. He's chasing a ball. He's kicking the ball. And his mom and his dad are laughing and filming it and posting it to Instagram, and he's getting a lot of affirmation for chasing and kicking a ball. And so little Johnny goes... Life is wonderful. Chasing and kicking a ball is just the way to live. And when I chase and kick a ball, mom and dad are happy and the world is good. This is fantastic. Okay, half an hour later, little Johnny kicks the ball, chasing the ball, and suddenly what happens? All hell breaks loose in Johnny's world. Suddenly he hears this voice, Johnny! And this great big hand grabs his back and yanks him backwards and puts him down and they're yelling at him and then his dad's whacking him on the butt and he's like, how do I make sense of that? Like half an hour ago, kicking the ball was wonderful. Now, it's terrible. Enigma of enigma. All of reality is ultimately enigmatic as a three-year-old. I can't understand. I can't. How do I know? Okay, what's happened? On the road. Kicked the ball on the road. He ran under the road. The context changed. Dad reached down, grabbed him, inflicted great pain on him. And he didn't understand. He didn't get it. But his dad did. His mum did. The only way a three-year-old can make sense of the world with his 
profoundly limited capacity to see the big picture, to understand cause and effect. The only way he can really understand those two experiences is to trust that mom and dad know what's best for him and love him and will guide him. So that's the answer of Colet. That's the answer of the Bible, that the only way you and I can actually live in this world well is, is to apply our minds to understand the world, go for it, but always do it with one hand in the hand of our loving Father. Fear Him. Learn from Him. Trust Him. Learn to see the world from His perspective. That's the path of life. Are you there? You know? It's your hand in God's. It doesn't mean it'll all be easy, but it means you'll be able to make sense of the world and you'll be able to live in the world. You've got to fear Him. You've got to obey Him. Like you've got to hold His hand and then you've got to walk with Him. See, it's no good for the three-year-old to hold Dad's hand and then fight against it. That's a recipe for misery, isn't it? You hold dad's hand and then you walk with him. You hold God's hand and then you walk with him. You trust God and you obey him. And that resolves our existential crises and our epistemological crises. And that's the path to human life and flourishing. Let's pray. Our Lord, uh, help us tonight to trust you, to hold your hand and then to walk with you to keep your commands. That's hard to do, Lord. This world is hard and difficult in so many ways. This journey is hard. It's not easy coming to a point with Kohelet where we can trust you and where we can hold your hand. This is a, this is a position that is hard fought. Pray, Lord, for us tonight and for any who are listening to this online that you will work in us so that we can do this, to go on this journey and end up in this place and then keep us in this place, Lord. Amen.